welcome to After the Bell with your host, Laura. This podcast is a series of conversations with educators, students, and lifelong learners with the hope of deconstructing some of the stereotypes around education. I would like to elevate and give a platform to educators and people that have been in the education system to inject the humanity and heart back into education. If you'd like to know more about me, please head to my Instagram page at EducatingLaura. I know that it's Monday, but I'm recording this little intro on Friday and we in Victoria have just been notified that we are going into a five-day lockdown. So yeah, just back on the wheel of COVID really. So we'll see what that leads to. We in Victoria, I think are very open to the fact that one announcement may lead to an amended announcement. So we're just kind of rolling with it. I think the kids are so used to it. I'm grateful to be honest this year that I don't have year seven because obviously year eights and above know what happened last year at school and sort of understand how to deal with this situation. Whereas with little notice, poor year sevens have just got their laptops at our school. And yeah, I don't think there's much that really can be implemented at the moment for them. This conversation is with Actually, this is going to make me sound so brazen and shameless, but I was at a park with my kids and this gentleman rocked up with his young daughter and we started chatting while we're pushing our kids on the swings. And he was telling me about how he had spent a long time in academia at a university, how he had been an educator at one point, how he was moving into a different industry now. And he seemed to have nine lives and at the crux of all of it, it was this idea that he just loved to learn and to be educated and to seek out new opportunities. And I said to him in our conversation, would you be interested in having a chat on a podcast about this? Because I think it's really interesting that although you may not be a traditional teacher in a classroom, although he has done education work, his love of learning has ultimately spurred on every opportunity that he has sought out. So I don't want to take any more away from his conversation, but I eventually got him on. We had a chat. His name is Chris and he talks all about his love of learning and where that has led him. The other thing I wanted to include as part of this introduction, my daughter was up the other night while I was editing and she's four and she wanted to know what I was doing. And so I said, would you like to be recorded? And so we recorded a little piece together just a really silly conversation with me and my daughter so I thought I'd include that as something a bit whimsical and hopeful and fun in a time of uncertainty with COVID and then I will get on to the conversation with Chris and again if you like this episode please share on social media subscribe or follow along do all of the things that would be great tag me in any kind of mention you do on socials that's always great at educating Laura on Instagram and here is my little chat with my daughter, Olivia. Hello, Olivia. How are you going? We are good. What would you like to be when you grow up? I, I want to work. What do you think mummy does for work? You work. What do I do? And you go, you work 
on your computer. I work on my computer? Yes. And what do I do on it? You do this. A podcast? Yes. I see. What do you think about that? Good. Mm. And what would you like to do at work? I'll, I'll do a podcast. Do you know what a podcast is? What? It's when you talk into a microphone and you have a conversation and you talk about things that are important to you. Oh, um, that's enough there. Okay. <laughs> Hello, Chris. How are you? Good. Thank you, Laura. How are you? Good. Thank you. I'd love to ask you how you would describe yourself as a learner. As a learner, I was a, a May baby. Um, so youngest in my grade, I found it very difficult to relate to other kids uh, and maintain a productive rhythm. Um, often I really, at, at more at primary school, I fell trapped to, um, let's call it seeking attention, uh, attempts to fit in. Um, in hindsight, personal reflection, it was my own insecurities. Uh, to try and find a place um, and on numerous uh, occasions I was actually obst- um, um, ostracised by the the differing ages and the learning stages that I felt uh, myself presented by uh, classmates. So yeah, it wasn't entirely the best start to a learning career. It's really interesting. I just had this conversation today with a primary school teacher friend of mine who has four children and all of her children are mostly that February, March birthday and I'm end of January and I was a little bit I was the younger one at the end of January everyone was born the year before and we were chatting about this ex- exact conversation that you're you're starting now about when to send kids because it's not clear and in our era I'm gonna group you with me it was very much about let's get them in if we can get them in so it was often a June cutoff and parents were very were wanting the kids to just go to school. I don't know if you thought felt that. Um, I completely felt that, um, probably for conversations um, upcoming. But um, my mm-hmm. mum was of education background. Um, my dad also um, heavily educated. They saw the worth, uh, benefit and grounding for education into tertiary, so from primary, secondary into tertiary to be accelerated as quickly as possible. I think for that, uh, I mean, this was, you know, what, uh, late 80s. I think that mm. if I had a, a bigger voice as a person going to school, I'd probably say, you know, mum and dad, please, I wish that you'd done that. Um, Sorry, I I wish that you didn't do that because Mm. a lot of the uh, classes that I was in, uh, being the youngest, and I think by about grade four, we actually had split year levels. So I went from Mm. being the youngest in a single year class to being even a younger in a split year class, and that made it even worse. Yeah. And so what was it for you that... Was it the fact that you didn't understand the social dynamics? Was it the fact that you didn't feel, you know, mature enough? Was it an was it the intellectual elements that you found challenging? What was it about being so young that made things so much harder for you, do you feel? It wasn't the intellectual side. Internally, my own dialogue was fine. I found the syllabus of what was being taught, if anything, I felt bored. I'm not 
suggesting by any stretch that I was overly studious. It was more just I think the curriculum at the time didn't challenge me enough. Mm. Um, it was more purely uh, the personality side of things where yeah. um, if, if I was in grade, you know, five, six, I was equivalent to a grade four. Um, mm. And I think it was purely the connectivity to older kids. And, you know, you're talking grade sixes that have already got friends in grade six or even connections to grade five. And that didn't include me. Um, mm. So, you know, it's in, in the um, schoolyards, you know, running around, you know, that, was, that was a challenging time. So, yeah. Yeah. And as I said, my this, this conversation I was having, my daughter's December and my nephew's Jan. So we were literally having this conversation today and we were talking about is it better to keep them back knowing that they potentially might be bored when they get to school or is it better to send them when they're intellectually able and supporting them socially outside of school? I don't know what the answer is. I don't think there is a hard and fast answer. But I find it interesting that literally I was having this conversation today and here you are bringing this up again. So clearly <laughs> it's a big conversation to be having. Well, it's one that's close to my heart. I've got a, a two-and-a-half-year-old and this is I'm starting to think about these kind of things with prep and primary school and even what schools offer as preferences. And, and not just that, but it's the school-slash-teacher engagement and empowerment that I think that should be at the, at the parent decision, not a systematic one of this is what the school does and these are the times that we will enrol. As it is with university, which I've been in for 10 years, it's here are the timelines you either fit in or you don't fit out um so uh, i think for me as a parent now because it's one that at the time didn't really work for me as a primary school student so when did you feel as though you hit your stride in education because we will get to it you are highly educated and have been in the formal education system for quite a long time so when did you hit your stride in which you felt as though you were coming into your own year nine secondary okay Okay, so what happened in Year 9? For me, outside influences took hold. The distractions of predominantly up until Year 9, so the very sort of clicky relationships between young boys and young girls and what pressions that mattered at the time. And I'm talking, I'm a 90s boy, so the pressures Mm -hmm. of decades are completely different. And mm-hmm. I think support and nurturing is something that is going to be for, forefront of my mind with my, especially daughter, coming through with the scrutiny through social media, which, yeah, that's going to be a challenge. Um, speaking to my own personal experience, I started to you know, get in the garden, read books. I wanted to start a job and, you know, mum and dad's got a job, so how come I don't have a job? You know, a lot of my friends worked at McDonald's as 16-year-olds and I thought, well, I can't get a job as a 16-year-old legally. So I, through a friend, went to a fishing tackle store and and worked as a 13-year-old for free and just, you know, on a Friday, Saturday, Friday night, Saturday morning, that's what I did. And what it enabled me was focus because one of the things that really, really um, hampered my learning ability was confidence. So up until year nine, I had teachers actually mm-hmm. second guessing the work I did at home because I was so distracted in the classroom just by everything, conversations, whispers, notes around the classroom, the trees outside, anything at all. I was so distracted. And then I'd go home and then yeah. write five pages of something. 
And then I'd be questioned, you didn't do that. Mm. You plagiarised that. And I said, no, no, that, that's my work. So detrimental. Well, what it did for me was break trust. It ruined my, I wouldn't say ruined, mm. but it hampered my empowerment to go above and beyond, uh, even to the point where I felt challenged when I had the same teacher from year seven and then again in year 11. So, I mean, the comments that were made to me from teacher to student was, um, you know, this is going to be a fun year, isn't it? From them to me. I felt very challenged. And for me, I turned that into a positive. um, And I'm happy that I saw it that way because I could have equally easily gone the other way. So I stopped seeing them as gremlins Mm -hmm. or obstacles. And I saw especially teachers as equals and aids of learning and started to really transition Mm -hmm. into people that um, shared an understanding of what it meant as highs and lows and then grew for patience and empathy as a teenager going through school. What are the things that you will be ensuring your daughter and soon-to-be daughters Mm -hmm. will have access to that you think is incredibly important based on your own educational experience in high school, primary school? That's a really hard one to answer. I think the ability to think on your own two feet and ascertain and empower what it is that you want. I know age, the relevance of age is always going to grow with that answer. So, you know, a 10-year-old is going to give Mm. a different answer to a 50-year-old. Naturally, that's fantastic. Mm. But at least you've Mm. set yourself something that you want to achieve. And I think that, to be honest, it's something that shouldn't be systemised. It shouldn't be this is what a school or a process enables. It should be something that a, and this is my opinion, not, and I know this for a fact, it's not a tertiary Mm. education empowerment. It's a parent should enable your child to answer their own questions and not be told this is what you have to do. How did you get to that place? Because that, as a 90s kid myself, was certainly not my experience. It was very much around authorities and people knowing better than me and listening to other people and formulating an opinion that was ultimately in some way regurgitated by the powers that be. When did you realise that you don't want it to be that way and that you actually see the importance in empowering your girls and I'm assuming probably people in your life to come to their own conclusions and question and come up with their own answers for things. I think for me, one of the biggest things, and this is by no means me wanting to go into any spiritual or uh, religious conversation at all, but brought into a very religious family from Christianity, uh, I'm a very tangible thinking kind of person. I need to touch, feel, see and do. So for me to strongly believe in something that I can't physically see was the catalyst to second, not second guess, but just inquire go to a different depth, ask questions, and then sort of from that create some problem-solving uh, ability that for me enabled a educational benefit, which was a platform for me to really grow. And from there, my life changed. So we began talking before you've told me about one or two teachers that haven't had a great impression on you. Are those the main sorts of experiences you had with teachers or were there other positive experiences that you had with educators? 
No, definitely not. So I had a mixed bag experience in primary school. I, I think, uh, look, the memory of primary school, it's a little hazy, but I have uh, very fond positive memories of a, uh, a male grade six teacher. I think that he was, you know, he lit the room, you know, speaking to some of your previous male podcast people. Yes. I felt as if I went straight back to a grade six classroom with them. And I just went, good on you. Thank you hey. for... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I certainly did. It it really brought emotions back of of courage and journey. So for me, it was yeah, it was really beneficial to hear sort of the beauty of what they say. Is it is? Do you think that hearing it from the male perspective helps being male? No, no, definitely not. So I'm a okay. impartial. I'm I'm definitely an impartial gender person. I believe it should be of equal ins and outs. For me, yeah. what I found was preconceptions. So during primary school and secondary school, I found that a lot of the female teachers, more English, biology, um, I'm going to call some labels, and they, they for me were battle axes. They were very assertive. They weren't with compassion. They weren't with tolerance. Yeah. And in um, secondary school, I felt that purely, you know, this is just my own experience, the male teachers were very gentle, uh, open-minded, empowering teachers, so more secondary, so maths, Mm. physics, chemistry, specialist mathematics, they were more the placid. I I never forget this one time my maths teacher said to me, you can still get 100% on your exam by showing me the process you've got correctly, but the answer can be wrong. Wow. And I, I just went, what? And he's gone, as long as you can prove to me that you've followed and, and got the, the process and the, and the you know rhythm of what the syllabus is, for me, I don't care if you've got the answer wrong. As long as you followed the steps that I've intended you to follow and you've mm-hmm. got to the end goal, you may have forgotten something along the way, but I'm certainly not going to say that you got zero out of 10 for that. Mm. So for me, that was a significance that I, again, you know, in terms of empowerment to a, what was it? year nine, year 10 student, that meant a lot. And so those are the things that you remember? Uh, look, I remember a lot dotted back through the history. Um, one of the challenges I found was that my mum actually was a substitute teacher at a number of schools and often frequented my school. So he was a qualified lawyer, a full-time mum at the time, three kids, She's completed a dip out of commerce and English, uh, English lit, and 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 my mum was my teacher often. So was that <laughs> awkward? Yes. Did I learn to love it begrudgingly? It was actually amazing. I had a few moments. I I, I recall them. I sat back and my peers respected my mum in a way that I never mm-hmm. did, and I grew from that. And I I remember having conversations subsequently from it, saying, you know, thank you for showing me that. Uh, and the same thing happened on different experiences with my dad. But I really hold them with so much respect and sort of uh, admiration, albeit they put me in school a year too early. <laughs> <laughs> but as I said, I, I'm going to call that a generational thing because I think that I saw that it was very, very, very rare for someone to be held back if they could go to school. Yeah. Not, no, I, look, I agree with that. Mm. How important was it for you to see your parents as individuals outside of the family unit, like what you're saying, to see your mum in a role that is outside of being your mother. How impactful was that for you? At the time, I didn't know its significance. 
It's only it's it's only upon reflection in more uh, adolescent into adult mind that I put it into perspective. You know, you wouldn't get this out of me as a teenager by no stretch. Okay. But but now thinking as a parent and as somebody who has taught over three hundred students, you know, and we'll get to that. Yeah. The outlook as to who you are as a teacher, the outlook of who you are as a parent is completely different to who you are as a student. You know, you're not going to come to those same conclusions, but the impact at the time is key. And what have some of those impacts been? You know, really just trust yourself. I mean, this is, again, my, my experience. Don't follow the the general, you know, especially with social media. I find it so hard to be caught up with perception and trust of, you know, accuracy of source. So just because somebody says it's this doesn't mean it's that. You you have to own, you have to own that identity of what it means, and and not just to you, but also to differing levels in your in your friendship circle, in in your group. And then from there, I think you can find and trust your own identity. What were some of the goals that you had by the end of high school? Where were you planning your life to take you? University, hundred percent. I had. Look, I had no choice. <laughs> I, had okay. a, I had a path laid out for me that I think innately involved university. So mum and dad were Ducks Honours students in secondary that were, you know, at the time the red carpet was rolled out for them and and that set them up. So for them passing on information and structure to their children that's something I really listened to I'm not saying that my sister and brother did that they had their own equally positive and challenging path that they went down Mm -hmm. but the one that I chose was university Mm -hmm. I wasn't driven for money because of it Uh, I was more environmentally focused and driven for change management so understanding the you know the the what is versus the what could be Mm -hmm. so that's that's really something that I I wanted to share with them and to make them proud. But but not just that. I wanted to create my own story and see where it could take me. And so the story for you was getting into what course? At the time, I had no idea. Okay. Honestly, I had no idea. I, of course, the, the enter school, well, the, the tertiary entry. It's a time now, but yes, it was enter. Yeah. Yes, it wasn't enter school. Well, yeah. yeah. I think it was TER, no, is that tertiary entrance rank? And then enter. So yeah. I, I was a student of TER, then enter. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that, yeah, that, that's the grey hairs, right? <laughs> <laughs> I felt limited in the courses that I could apply for. And I can understand similarly, if I was going to trade school, those acceptances would be based on how well you fared in your ATAR score. So for me, mm-hmm. I really, I really wanted to, you know, the world could be your oyster and I wanted to get into like, you know, medicine or veterinary science or sort of industrial affairs. And I couldn't because of my scores. You know, I wasn't the nine. Mm. you know, a lot of my friends were the 95 plus and, and I was close to that, but I certainly was limited by my score. So mm. my motivation was to at least get some degrees and be part of the tertiary education because I believed in it as a system and it then meant that I chose to stay in the university system as an academic for 10 years. So the course you chose, it was environmental 
biology or something like that. Is that correct? Is that the focus you went down? I know you were doing botany somewhere in there, so you might have to clear up my understanding, please. Yeah, that's fine. So I I was environmentally focused and it was uh, forest science at the University of Melbourne and science. So there was a lot of, look, with, with that, uh, uh, courses or subjects that you would take would be environmental politics, uh, mathematics, statistics, you know, the core key competencies that had I'd known that I really would have applied myself more at secondary school. So if, if I could sort of talk back to my secondary school former self, I'd probably say, yeah, you should have really paid more attention to specialist maths. <laughs> so okay. but university... Yeah, look, I did, but I could have, I could have really focused a bit more. But um, at university, I think the dropout rates, you know, nearly pushing fifty percent, for a myriad of reasons. Mm -hmm. It's more you find yourself in the wrong course, your aptitude isn't at par. And the funny thing was a lot of my friends were, and this is by no means to disincentive private school education, but more remark on my own experience, I found that the ones that were dropping out were the actual ones from private schools. Okay. From your experience based on those people, what were the things that you think impacted those individuals from for dropping out? The ability to self-discover, self-ascertain mm-hmm. and drive yourself forward. At university, there is no one even tutors, you're in a room with 30 to 50 people. It's not five. It's not one. You have to drive your own career. Um, and I say that as a mentor to PhD students. I say that as a person who went through the university system as a student for five years. The cost of university is such an extreme decision that you will have that debt financially for 10 to 30 years based on your um, on your salary. So it's a big decision that I think you don't go following a systematic, this is what we think you should do because you've got the scores. It's You've really got to want it. I don't think there's enough conversations around that, to be honest. I think that we're perhaps dismantling it a little bit now about the fact that it could look differently. But certainly for me, you know, finishing the early 2000s was you go to university and I saw so many people swap and change courses. And unfortunately, what happened is they would do a semester at what, two and a half thousand dollars at the time or whatever it was, and do nothing with that semester and then change to something else. And so there was an accruement of somewhere between, you know, five to ten thousand dollars of a debt that never went towards whatever course they ended up finishing if they finished. So you're right. I think that those conversations are not had as readily as perhaps they could be. So I was lucky in that, yeah, sure, I went and had enjoyment of the university life. I think that's part of it because it's really where you can understand yeah. understand and really expand upon the emotional side of what the university brings, the connectivity to people. And I think the value of that is paramount to success, in my opinion, for future endeavours. That's not to say that you go out and get drunk every second night. It's part of university, but at the end of the day, if you struggle, you've got yourself to really kick. And I think that that's something that really, it's hard. I mean, I could bring it back to secondary school. I sat next to uh, intellectually impaired people, you know, classified as that. Um, and I was asked to sort of help them through and, and be there with them. And that's something that I actually did with my mum as a young child, that she would actually be custodian to a, a group of people in need. And the beauty that I saw in these people was outstanding. I know I'm digressing here, but 
I think what they showed was the ability to create their own path, albeit they might not have said words exactly as we would say them or they wouldn't write words the way others would write. But for them, that was beauty. And I, I, I found a lot of sort of solace and respect from that. And I, mm. I didn't see much of that at university with people that w when they hit that wall, they ran the other way and they didn't know what to do. So for me, being able to be empowered and follow their own nose through something, I think was, was key. I think that that's a pretty universal experience in what I hear. It's that that resilience and that, as you say, the confidence to know that a failure is a misstep and not the end, you know, and to move through them is really, really important. And so you finished your forest science degree and then what were the steps after that? Because you did mention before you were in academia for 10 years at Melbourne Uni. Yeah, so unfortunately you can call me a bit of a geek because um, a lot of the friends that I made were the lecturers and the tutors um, <laughs> purely purely because I was somebody that would question why. And from that, it would be I'd, I'd go back to their office and say, you did something in that class that I didn't understand. I want to understand why you did that. What, at your first year of uni, you were doing that? Yeah, there was no other way to learn. That's amazing. People don't do that. People think that lecturers don't have enough time for them. No, 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 you know, Or I'm going to go to a textbook. So this is a really important thing to talk about. So you can do that, right, can't you? Oh, 100%, 100%. And this should be at secondary all the way through all forms of education. That's my belief. That's how I, as a teacher for four years, also adopted that, you know, phone, email, any kind of correspondence. The door should be open. And the contact hour of sitting there and absorbing, if you're questioning something because either you've got a differing opinion or you get a different outcome, you should really challenge that and go to the person. If it's reading a, an article, a media source, a textbook, you liaise with that person and then create dialogue. And then from there, a lot of symbian benefits from sort of social uh, emotional intelligence forms because, you know, this is me, a 18-year-old talking to somebody that's potentially 25 to 60, and mm. then you're talking to a, a greater adult. And, yeah, that's daunting, but I'm paying a lot of money to find out why. Uh, and I'm, you know... I don't want to go to the pub at lunchtime. I'd prefer to go and hassle someone's door. So uh, that that's my approach. But I think it's an important one. Yeah, look, I don't think university lecturers would really appreciate lines on their doors, but I think a happy balance to you get enough to move momentum forward. But look, if you're going to hit the, the nail four times and you still can't push it down, you've got to ask yourself, should you be there? But if you can really sort of hammer it home once or twice with a couple of questions, then I think you've got a good sort of grounding to really ascertain a good career academically. Or, I mean, even the word academically, look, I think it's a bit fanciful. It's just some of the smartest people I know do not have degrees. But unfortunately, mm. in this world, for you to be an engineer, to work for a consultancy company, to have public liability, you have to have accreditations. Mm. And, I mean, it's that whole experience versus education mm. what is more valuable somebody that's been doing the job for 10 years or someone who has a qualification so that they can do the job both well these days it's the latter it's the formal qualifications Le legally you're not allowed so that, that, that yeah. doesn't mean that professors and and general managers uh, they don't have those qualifications or at least a lot of them that i know don't 
but they've been in industry that long that they know things inside out, that they are considered a subject matter expert, that, that they guide ships moving forward in every entity. Yeah. So for me, it was food for thought that be careful of who you know and what you know, but if you want to sort of exceed in, you know, things even like trade school, for you to even step sided on a, a trade site, you need accreditations, you know, you need your swim lanes to be ticked off. Yes. I just want to clarify what we were saying before about the fact that we're not ex- we're not asking any university student to bang down the lecturer's <laughs> door. It's about, <laughs> it's about the fact that that is an option that you should feel free to take up if you wish, but there are also so many avenues in which you can find information too but not to be scared I suppose seeing those people in those roles as a resource for you 100% and I think making I mean I I grew up with encyclopedias Britannica I actually (laughs) I actually had a ceremonial burning I'm sorry to say it was yeah I saw the value amount I thought I'm not going to resell them I'm gonna use them for warmth yeah so everything's online you have the world entities at your fingertips, the thing that I ask, and this is what I, as a mentor to PhD students, is ensure that it's from a reputable source, that it is peer-reviewed, it's not then plagiarised and then edited in a way that you'll find yourself in hot water. So that's where Mm. I really go back to the grounding of primary school where the problem-solving workflows and techniques for me, I think that was the biggest benefit that I really have in in my current life, and I know it'll hold me in good stead in future lives. Call them my my children. Mm. Well, it's just that idea of discernment, really, isn't it? In every aspect of life, you need to know what to listen to and what not to listen to. What's accurate? What feels right? Especially in education. Yeah, it's probably why I don't watch the news anymore. Um. <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd rather sort of read sources of, of information. Now, I know we're digressing, but, you know, just if you turn on Channel 7, 5 o'clock news, it's just out of hysteria. So, you know, if you're a, and I need to be mindful of this as a parent, not prohibiting yeah. what my child watches, because I actually think exposure to that and then inner questioning is positive. Mm. To an extent. And I was brought up with a a very limited exposure to certain things. It was, no, no, we're not going to talk to you about world wars. We're not going to talk to you about, we're just not going to talk to you about that because that's very negative and it will potentially take you to a path that we don't want you to. Mm -hmm. And then, if anything, it made me more interested in learning about what was happening in the mid-80s that caused my mum and dad to stay up until one o'clock listening to something. And then I'm finding out things that were a little bit disturbing, but, you know, world events. On a, on a world scale that really focused the mind. The hard part parenting in this time is that we don't have as much control over what our kids have access to, whether it's phones, laptops, they're probably going to have some kind of device at primary school, how you kind of deal with the information that they're absorbing. And I think that the no, you can't do that isn't going to get you the result you expect. It's going to get, yeah, the sneaky things and it's the conversations of, well, let's talk about that. Let's question whether that's worth listening to that I think are the more important things to be considering. I 100% agree. As a person, a student, a teacher, and, and as a parent, I know firsthand that if I say, please don't drop something when, it, when it's dinner time, the next thing my daughter's going to do is drop it. So it's it's the classic 
thing of, all right, everyone, you can't have your phone in the 90s. It was chewing gum. You cannot chew chewing gum in class. Look, look mm. underneath the tables and see how many people listen. Correct. So, Correct. <laughs> so as soon as you say you can't do something, that you know, it's moth to a flame. You, you're going to do it. Mm. And I think, I think it's actually, um, I'm not going to say a more, hor- a more higher moral ground, but it, it would enable self-dialogue and empowerment to say, yeah, you can think about that, but we have a conversation about it. Definitely. And as I said, you're not going to be able to stop it because people can get access to information everywhere. <sighs> yeah, that's scary. <laughs> think about the streaming services. You know, you think about how protected we were even with just time slots of television. In hindsight, I'm so glad I grew up in those decades. I Part of me actually wishes that I, <laughs> I, I grew up in the Prohibition era because I think I would have been more focused. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the academia and the roles you had at Melbourne University. So you finish your degree, you then spend a further 10 years, is that correct, in Melbourne University or is that including the degree? No, so that's separate. I did a, um, a further honours degree and that mm-hmm. sponsor, if you will, of the honours degree actually was one of the deans at the university. Again, he was a door that I knocked on and from that really had good camaraderie and a person that I respected and, and sought a lot of guidance from, you know, at a distance. I wasn't talking to him every day. It was probably once every sort of two to four weeks, even as an honours student, Right, because they've got disparate yeah. number of people that they are in effect applying themselves to. So you can't you can't overuse them. From that, I really grew to love academia. So um, I spent the next ten years as a as a researcher, and at first, I really struggled finding a job. Uh, I worked pro bono for a num- number of companies. I remember working okay. as a botanist, thinking, you know, what the hell am I doing? This isn't me. I knew inside me, my 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 inner conversation was, Chris, you know, you need a job, but this is just, you know, this is just ridiculous. You know, you can't do this. Okay, so you didn't feel qualified, and you didn't feel passionate about what was the what was the inner dialogue in terms of it not being passionate. right for you? I was one of the high, highest marks in botany, mm. but I didn't want to do it. I knew that I didn't want to do it. I didn't see a path. It wasn't rewarding for me. I still know botanists that mm. love it, you know, and I love talking to them, but it's not a journey for me. So when I stepped into mm. more the R&D side of the university, so research and development, and this yep. had a a water, a hydrology, an engineering focus. So, you know, really, really quickly, it's all about the quantity and quality of Australia's water. Uh, and and the events, the natural events that would impact on that. So you're talking fire, flood, uh, aridity, salinity, El Nino, La Nina, you know, climate, diversity of people, all these things impact on water. Now, you know, gold bullion is the highest commodity at the moment. I'd argue that water will be. Mm-hmm. You know, pe- people don't value water, I think. Look at toilet paper, right? People saw the commodity as, uh, well, I, I have to have that. Mm-hmm during COVID and it was only until people said we've run out that you realise the importance of it Mm. and I I actually started one of my lectures quite argumentatively and said do you think water comes out of a tap (laughs) because it doesn't Mm. and then that sort of springboarded you know where and why and how we need to preserve it as an asset Mm. so yeah that was important to me to follow through and 10 years, you know, it's a big chunk of my life and, and uh, you know, the people that really can be part of that 
I grew to love mm. and still have as friends and people I respect, you know, as, as people holding sort of high stature roles in the community, I call these people my friends. And so what are you the most proud of achieving in those 10 years, in those sort of academic positions? Completing things that I didn't think were possible. Writing documents that were used in legislation, both state and federal. Education that then could be shared with other people. Documented and I've written, uh, co-authored about 21 articles, international articles. Mm -hmm. So the fact that they're then publicly available is something that for me I was very proud of. Mm. You know, I'm not somebody that's never going to be, you know, the first author on something, meaning you're the main show, right? Mm-hmm. I'm more in the background. But for me, that was that was enough. That was the rewarding factor of I contributed mm. and I had enough from that that I knew that it mattered. Yeah. What is something that you think more people should know about regarding the work or the information that you found out in those years regarding whether it's water, environmental, what's something what's something you think people need to know? There's a whole lot more than what's actually documented. You know, I'll give you an example. Uh, we wrote something like a 30-page journal that was, you know, really cutting-edge stuff for water. For example, after wildfires, the quality of water can be impacted if this happens and that happens, you know, and you've either got a choice to take it on board or not. And... It's very hard to then communicate that to people who are then, I'm not going to say stuck in their ways, but are more used to doing certain things Mm -hmm. in a way that the change management side of that is very hard to achieve. Mm -hmm. I guess the point that I'm trying to say is go searching and look to a degree that there's always information. You just got to know where to find it. Okay. It's that door that you've then got to ask the person and keep on asking, keep on challenging. So there were things that you found out that you know that you've researched that is available but is not so publicly promoted. Yeah, exactly, documented. I think over the time that I was there, I helped complete or at least mentored, I think, eight PhD students. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is PhD stipends. You're basically working for free. Somebody out of secondary school two years in could get paid more than a PhD stipend. You do it to really cement a career. You don't go into the university system, or at least in the field that I was in, to make money. Mm. It was the eventual reason why I chose to move on Mm. from the university because I felt that I could seek greener pastures for a lifestyle that I wanted to have in other fields. Mm. And then that's when I went into private consultancy and, and then became a teacher for four years. Let's talk about that. Teaching for four years. Tell me about that role as a teacher for you. It was one of the most challenging experiences of my life. I thought I knew it all. I came in. So what were you teaching? So I was a, a consultant teaching something called GIS systems, so geographic information systems. It's really, really quickly. It's essentially layers of information that you would put into a system and then analyze. And it's questioning data in a systematic layer way based on time and location. So that's, you know, that's a very, very high level, you know, that's probably the first statement of a five-day course that I would sort of rinse, repeat, you know, for 30 weeks of each year. Okay. I came into that thinking I knew how to teach because I've done it at university. Okay. I learned Mm. so much about teaching and myself 
that it was confronting. Such a mirror to be reflected back to you. It's very interesting to see what you can see as a teacher. What I learned was I stood up there for the first six months and thought, I'm the expert in the room. I know the syllabus and this is mm-hmm. what you need to learn. And that was completely the wrong approach. And it's something that, you know, in the, okay. when I say wrong, I mean, again, that's my own experience because the connectivity and what people took away was lessened because it was almost a do something this way. And what I then learned was that you needed to chameleize and apply to every single person in that room and learn before or even, in fact, during why they were there, what they wanted to achieve, how they best learned, and how you could help. And it wasn't about why... Yeah. (laughs) It wasn't about why you were there to teach them a certain thing. It was what do you want to take away from this? How can you best apply it? And then how can I challenge you to go to the next step in the room that I can control? And I'll check up every month afterwards with phone calls to see how you're going. Mm. Uh, Mm. And that's something that by the end, I was in a leadership position at that company because it's something that I internalized and motivated myself to want to achieve. And it was to the betterment is that a word? I think it is. The betterment of every every single student. So, you know, I'm talking different languages, ages. Uh, I could have a epidemiologist in the room. I could have a a forester. I could work, you know, somebody that could work for the World World Health Organization or an urban planning or somebody that was a, I don't know, an entomologist, somebody that looks at uh, insects. And I had to bend, twist and adapt Mm. every single person in that room, just like teachers do with primary school and high school for a whole range of reasons. Mm -hmm. It could be, okay, something's happening in my mind or with my mum and dad at home that I can't explain and today I don't want to learn. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, and you don't know what's in their mind, but you need to be appreciative and understanding of support, be there for them. You know, I'm talking not just whilst the contact of you at the front of the room. My, one of the things that I really challenged was I didn't like to stand at the front of a room teaching tables of people. I would actually, before each class, circularize all the tables and then I would just be a part mm. of it so that it would be an inclusive conversation about a learning agenda so that it became circular. And it wasn't you listen to me and you do as I say, it's everyone's got a voice, everyone's got an opinion and there's no wrong or right. It's just whatever you want to think and feel, let's talk about it. And if we get off track, there's the parking lot, you know? So mm. it, it's it's a really hard thing to teach. But for those that really want to connect and enable people to learn, which for me I knew was in me because my mum and dad tried to do that and did do that with me, but I, I stood actually there in that room and made decisions to be a good teacher. It was more, I wanted to live vicariously through my, especially my mum, who was, you know, a qualified teacher. And uh, I felt like I was doing her proud. I was making her proud. That's really nice. (laughs) Well, it mattered for me at the time. How long did it take you to shift the way you thought you should be teaching to the way that you realised was better teaching? 
took me as long as I was a teacher. I think if I was still a teacher today, I'd still be learning. Mm. I don't think I ever cracked the code. Mm. I think it's a journey that every day is different. Every single student's going to be, they're not cookie cutters. Mm-hmm. I think you'd be finding yourself out of a job or not really motivated to keep doing it in a form of success if you took that approach of I can do this because every day is going to be different. And that, yeah. and for me, that's what kept it interesting. Like I, I taught six, seven different courses and this would be you're there for three to four days from eight till five, even really if I got connected to some people and they wanted to stay, I'd stay there till 10 o'clock at night if they wanted to bring something. I had a whole heap of PhD students that would say, I need your help. It's like, well, I'm not getting paid for this, but yeah, why not? It's better than a hotel room. <laughs> so I, really, yeah. I that kept it interesting for me. I think if, if I was a, a parent as a teacher, it would be completely different because, uh, and that's something that I think, I think, is it Mr. J, your last podcast? I, I listened to that one. And I, yeah, yeah. I yeah. remember him saying that as a principal that he still isn't able to teach. And for me, he said that, you know, teaching isn't primary, as in as in top priority for him, because he's a, a parent, and that and that that's okay, and that the public perception of that yeah. shouldn't be that if you're a teacher, that's all you do. It's like, well, hang on, now you've got you've got so much other which are priorities in your life that need to be factored into that, uh, and I think that that's really unfairly viewed from other parents who are the well you're my teacher sorry you're you're the teacher of my kids so you give 100 percent to that and nothing else is like well that's not really the way it goes no and what you've just described too is the fact that when you are a teacher the heart sometimes can lead you more than the head can and so even though you know that you need to put in a boundary or you need to go to bed or you really need to do some self-care the compassion that you have for somebody else trying to strive to get a goal and the privilege that there is to be a part of someone being able to recognise that is so big in teaching that we do, we're almost the biggest martyrs out there <laughs> because we know, we know we need to call ourselves out and say, come on, it's enough now. But it's that beauty of learning, seeing someone thrive and become who they need to be and being a part of that the joy and the rewarding that is very very hard to turn away from so it's a very it's a big juggling it's a big juggling act i think yeah it it, it certainly is and i you know as life continues for me into you know now having two kids two kids i take my hat off to teachers in any level and I, I genuinely mean that because it would be a, a, a wow, well, it can be a thankless job. It often is. It's a gift that keeps on giving. And for me as a teacher, I found the end point that I got to was the connection of empowerment. I, for the first probably six to 12 months, I stood there as a teacher and wanted to be understood. So one of the sort of most important things that uh, that I learnt was that uh, my biggest challenge is seeking to understand first and then be understood. Mm. Uh, and as a mantra of life, it's having the tolerance to be okay with that's not going to be reciprocated. You know, you're not going to have students or people or friends just sit there and do that for you, right? So it was more an empowerment of teaching a process and a workflow and enabling those people to find their own path. And for me, that was really important as a, as a, as a, um, uh, a teacher because it really identified 
how I was as a student and who I am as a person. You can learn so much about yourself from what's reflected back to you from a group of students that don't really care (laughs) what you think, you know, because, well, especially at high school at least, they are not paying me to be there. You know, they're they're in my classroom because I have to be there. And so that lack of compassion at times for me as their teacher is confronting but also a really interesting learning opportunity. Completely agree. I think in every angle that you look at it, um, I think it's got positives, but there's plenty of hardships. I mean, I'm not a big believer on systematic approach to education. I think that it needs to be Mm customised. But realistically talking, that's going to bring effort, time and the malleability to make it happen, right? So that path is certainly not the one of least resistance. It's going to be tough. But do you know what? If we really care about our future and the aptitude of, you know, the longevity of this world, we need to empower our people because they're the future, right? And if we shortchange the system of education, we're disservicing our future. I love what you've said, but it's the how of it and how it happens that's that gets me every time because you know like I was chatting to a friend of mine today who was talking about at a particular school they do prep one and two together and there's like 20 kids she was finding that very confronting at the idea of there being so much scope and different ways of learning things in the room my thought is well that is a really great opportunity to customize the learning because you have perhaps a prep that is actually at a grade one level who could actually be moving in to that and have similar interests to somebody who's not, you know, necessarily in their age bracket. But then you've also perhaps got a grade two who still hasn't mastered something at grade one that is doing that with no shame because it's not like the whole grades moved up. So I saw that as really beneficial, but there's a lot, there was a lot of resistance in that conversation that I was having. And I can see that too. So it's a really hard one in terms of yeah, it would be great to customise the education system. It would be great to remove shame around whether you're at standard or below standard. It would be great to allow people to pursue passions that are theirs rather than telling people what's important and what's not important. But what does that look like? How do we get to that place? So I've got a few thoughts on that. I think we're very oh, fortunate. Good. <laughs> Internationally, I think we're very fortunate. I think the... Um, the literacy rate compared to a lot of other countries, you know, I think we're probably not at the mark that we need to be, but we're doing okay and that we're fortunate enough that a lot of other countries are struggling. And look, yes, it's a population to teacher ratio and they've got their own struggles. So if I sort of have an education, I'm going to make damn sure that it's something that is not taken for granted, that it is actually a privilege and that Mm. you only get out what you put in. The other thought I've got to, if you're in a classroom as a teacher or a lecturer, um, it's not really a lecturer, but it's more, I guess, yeah, when you're just teaching, there's got to be a threshold because you start to become ineffective over a certain number of students in the room. The reason why I say that is, if you really do want to customise your learning, okay, you've got the syllabus to teach. But if you can identify and be connected to people that are disruptive or bored looking out the window, it's not because that their inability puts them there. 
it could be that they're just not challenged. So they're being able to yeah. connect. And at least this was my own experience and having some pre-prepared things that were ideally suited to their industry would then bring them back on track and then say, now I know that you finished that in half the time, but I don't want you to be on your phone and distract the person next to you or listen to audio at volume two of 10, because I'd rather you not do that. It's more, if you're willing, here's some things to to work through. And if you need help, I'm here, just ask me. And I really mm -hmm. felt that that was a, a good way to customize your learning. But that didn't fall on me. I didn't get paid to do that. I did that because I knew that that would happen. And I think it's the understanding of the depth of knowledge and capabilities of people too, rather than giving them busy work, understanding what their interests are and developing extension that is genuine extension, which is learning something new, not just doing something you've already done before to keep you quiet. Yeah. Look, there is there will always be a bit of that, but mm. I'd hope that it's in the smaller bucket. Because yeah. if I was doing that, I'd probably not listen to me <laughs> Yeah, as yeah. a teacher. Uh, I'd tune out and I'd be that kid that would be disruptive if I was the primary school teacher. So I think in hindsight, what I needed was something that would focus the mind and then challenge the journey. Yes. So where are you now? We've talked about academia. We've talked about having the teaching role. What is life like for you now professionally? I work as a as like a business analyst slash a solution designer for a logistics company. Mm -hmm. And I would say it's one of the most challenging roles that I've had for the reason of communication. And this goes back to the learning techniques where the power to articulate the written word, the complexity mm -hmm. of the spoken word, and how to actually do that with brevity and effectiveness. For me, I'm thankful that I've got that and I'm I'm going okay. I'm in a new job and I'm every morning looking forward to working and achieving and, and you know, my own reward is knowing that I've helped something move forward or being implemented, right? Mm -hmm. But I look back and thank the – and I always go back to, you know, I'm so glad that I did what I did of primary, secondary, tertiary and my own education path and it's a stepping stone. So, you know, I could look now and say that everything that I've done is all because of now and today, it's really not. It's the journey of decisions that you make as a, a 10-year-old, a 20-year-old, a 30-year-old. So, yeah, that, that's that's where I'm at at the moment. And life is good. About to have a second child and, look, that scares the pants off me. <laughs> it should. No. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, it's a juggling act. So, yeah. So how did you or how are you qualified for the role you now have? Because we've been talking about having the piece of paper and it doesn't sound like a science <laughs> botany-based job you have. So what was the education that led you to that role of the logistics right. so, analyst? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So this is the link. As a teacher and the program or software that, that I was teaching, right, I then worked for a company and specialized in it. So I went from that private consulting firm into a larger company, a logistics firm, and then specialized in it. And this was new to them. So essentially, I had to work within a team to then, again, educate thousands of people. And these were very 
regimented standard operating procedure type people that would not look left or right of center and you know i got to a point i spent four years in that company i thought you know i love teaching people and i love really sort of making good headway of task and achievement but by god it's it's tiring so i i wanted to more go into a sort of a program management or program delivery role and for me it's uh, something that is is it's going to eventuate in the future it's all about automation of what is manual mm-hmm. right so that yeah that's that's my future that that's where my interests lie because i'm i'm good at it what are your thoughts about that's a big like hmm. future kind of topic isn't it the idea of removing the manual to make something automated what are your thoughts about the impact that that will have in the future for humanity chris Mm, it's a very very difficult one to answer because it's impacting us right now okay so look this is something that i think really would be a you know another hour session on (laughs) political It, it, it really is because it goes to the core of unemployment rates, political regimes, CPI, it, it really goes to, you know, share indexes. You know, it, what would be worse is if our firms sold up and said, right, we're just going to go to China, for example. Okay. And we're not going to retain the processing of things here within Australia. So companies make the decision as shareholders to then say, we will invest in the future of Australians and the future of automation and keep it here. Alternatively, we can then sell everything up and it's all coming from overseas. So it's either you've got a job and it's with automation and it's staying here and life is good in a different way. So we really need to be very agile and open-minded. And that really changes the perception of how people see positions and jobs. There's no such thing as uh, death and taxes anymore and the jobs that go with that. So the death and taxes comment is more, you know, a lot of people think that to get a government job is sound, it's secure. It's not. It's, It's really not because things change very very quickly and we need to be as people as teachers really sort of building the resilience and agility of do you know what today it's this and tomorrow it could be that look at COVID Mm. and I've listened to a lot of people take a lot of positivity from COVID to say that I've stopped you know listening to media outlets or my phone and I've looked back at dialogue of face-to-face contact exercise you know what I need to do what I need what I can do and there's been a lot of enjoyment and I've seen that as a parent I haven't really had time to to do all those (laughs) to do all those wonderful things like go for two hour walks I mean one hour walks that are upon restriction yeah so I think for me it it's a difficult one because essentially i'm dealing with people to say what you're currently doing now in six to twelve months time won't be done that way and it's a matter of bringing them on the journey so that they have again an empowering point of position it's not dictatorship it's not i'm doing this because you have to again i felt like i was back in a in a a teacher's room it's more you know what do you want to achieve how can you impact what do you want to get out of it because then you'll get good buy-in i think that there's so many things that i want to say about what you just said first of all being that i talk often about 
future-proofing in education and the fact that education system has dragged their feet for quite a long time in terms of getting on the bandwagon about the fact that the world is shifting so, so dramatically and the education system is not shifting as dramatically as the world. And you've just given me another example of why that needs to happen. The fact that you know, you're saying that with automation and the movement towards more auto- automation, the roles of actual people will not be what they have been and they'll have to then shift and evolve into something else to support a process that we don't yet know is coming as a you know, general population. And also the other thing I'd like to talk about there is the fact that it's this role of being a teacher that has then accelerated you in this other role that you didn't expect to have in industry because it's the communication, the ability to empathise, understand, connect to individuals. So I would say that teachers, even if you don't stay in the profession, those skills will never be lost skills. I think without them, you wouldn't be as beneficial in other careers or at least the diversity that you could bring to a team regime. I think anyone that goes, oh, you're a teacher and then typecast, I think would be actually being the narrow-minded person in the room. Mm. If anything, teachers bring a certain sort of way of thinking that enables so much because, and and this is something that, that I pride myself on, is that every single meeting you give context, you give reason, you understand the whys, and then you give direction and outcome. That's the process of being a teacher. It's like, what do, what did we do yesterday? What are we going to do today? What's our syllabus for tomorrow? And what do we need to do? And all the way along that is is how to communicate and build trust. Because if you're a teacher and you don't have the trust of all the children or adults in the room, you really aren't connecting. Mm, I agree. And that's exactly the same as on a phone call in a, a meeting room. Mm. What are the really big lessons that you have learnt in life, Chris? <laughs> That's a really hard one. For me, not having my mother and father, it's respect your elders. It's understanding the time and space of every single moment. For me, the pace at which life moves is so quick. The life lesson is where you can slow down smell the roses, enjoy what is. And I know that'll be something that I'll probably get an extra decade of my life because of that life lesson. So, you know, the main strength to my life, losing that is something that really brought so many life lessons. And, and look, that's very hard for me to say because it's very close yeah. to my heart. But but um, essentially losing the biggest teachers in your life is, is, a, is a hole that you can never fill. Mm. So... From that, you get life lessons. I think really trust yourself. Respect everyone that has a a differing opinion. Just because they disagree with you doesn't mean you lose respect. Mm. And it's play nice in the sandpit. You know, don't throw stones. You know, so what they're calling names. Be the bigger person. Go up and say, are you okay? You know, just really just take the higher ground and really sort of be there for people because, you know what? I've been that bully in the, in the schoolyard and it was because I was struggling and I didn't know what mm. I was doing and I chose to do that because I couldn't articulate with words. So I chose body strength. I mean, this I'm talking about when I was in grade three, right? So it's something that I yeah. did probably a couple of times and realised that wasn't me. But mm. I learned a lesson from it that that was never going to win, influence or change, control anything in your life. So it should just be completely removed from how you think of 
respect for equal kind. And it's not mm. just humans. It's, you know, to non-human things. It's how you look at birds. Don't, you know, don't don't go and throw stones at birds. You know, they've got an existence yeah. and being as well. It's like respect everything around you. Trees. Mm. I, mean, it, I mean, it even goes to, I'll give you an analogy. During the 1850s gold rush, people were so fixated on extracting gold. Well, in Australia, it actually killed our agronomy mm. and primary industry because we couldn't grow anything because the water table rose and everything got too salty right so it's something mm. that for 150 now 170 years we're now trying to get back to our status quo of where it was back in the 1850s so it's, right. yeah, yeah yeah so it's it's just respect everything around you not just the humans but but every form of life i know that's a little bit sort of airy fairy but for me that's an important life lesson i always say to my kids because whenever we go for walks they want to pick flowers and pick things and i said you know you can appreciate without possessing you can appreciate without actually having to own that thing they think i'm ridiculous because i just want to pick flowers but i'm like you don't just appreciate it for what it is and where it is and, and leave it. You don't have to possess it. You know, my daughter said something the other day. We grow strawberries out the back and, and she always has this thing of picking the white ones and I, yeah, she, for some reason, that's the one she goes for. Now, open the back door, boom, she's to the white strawberries. Mm-hmm. It's like, darling, they're not <laughs> ready yet. Why? Why, Daddy? It's yeah. like, well, they're not ready to give you delicious fruit for you. And then yeah. it's a matter of days before she's starting to say, don't pick the white ones, Daddy, because they're not ready for me. They're not ready for you. And I'm yeah. just sitting there going, all right, you're not parroting these things. It's actually making sense. And and yeah. it's only, I think, as a parent that you go, yeah, nah, there's, there's a lot that even the developing mind of a two-year-old really get. So you can imagine a teenager and you can imagine an adult, right? Oh, yeah. So, and anyone that sits there and goes, well, I don't know you and I think that you won't get this. You've already made judgment. I just don't think people should be doing that. I mean, I fell victim to that, but the more I became educated, the more, and, and, you know, even, uh, look, I'm, one of the things I learned was um, World War history. And from that, I had influences that really put me in precarious situations where I formed viewpoints that were not appropriate yeah. 50 years later, two generations mm. later. And it's just like, whoa, do you know what? That's a life lesson that it happened back then. Education is going to tell me yes. certain things, but that doesn't make it okay to think that way now because the the second and third generation yeah. doesn't mean that it reflected the World War One or World War Two or Vietnam War or anything like that. Thank you so much for giving me all your time and for – opening our minds to, you know, the environment and the many roles that you've had in education in the university sector, which is an industry because you don't get to talk about that very often. So thank you. You're very welcome. I've enjoyed it. Thank you, Laura. 